As we've been in 1 Peter, we see that 1 Peter has much to say about the future. And that would have been encouraging to the saints that were going through suffering. In chapter 1, verse 4, we heard about the inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Peter encouraged these saints who are being persecuted about the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, verse 5. About the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ in verse 7 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 13, he encouraged them to fix their hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17, he reminded them that they time on earth was temporary. It's their stay on earth. So to see these saints suffering in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, is not surprising seeing this future focus as they were going through suffering for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. But perhaps these saints wondered, well, why doesn't God take us home now? Perhaps those who wonder that the most could have been slaves. We learned a lot about slavery in the ancient Roman world. Uh, perhaps up to 40% of the population of the Roman Empire in, in certain areas were slaves, 25 uh, to 40%. Some of them had good and gentle masters. Others, though, were, and the word that Peter uses, were perverse, were twisted, were wicked men. Perhaps these slaves wondered, why doesn't Jesus Christ come back and fix this now? Why has God left us here? He liberated Israel from slavery in Egypt. Why hasn't he liberated us? Peter gives them purpose in 1 Peter 2, in 1 Peter 2 verse 5. He tells them about how they are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful picture they had in their own work lives as slaves. That really what they were doing as they worked was offering up spiritual sacrifices. In 1 Peter 2.9, he encouraged them that they were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, with this purpose, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He gave them the purpose in 1 Peter 2.12 of, as they kept their behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter gave these purposes not just to the slaves, but it was likely that a large percentage of these churches were slaves. And so he gives them these glorious purposes and this glorious identity. And he really lets them know why God has left them here. And he has left us here because there is a divine drama taking place. It is from the stage of our lives that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is from the stage of our lives that we do good deeds so that those without God will glorify God on the day of visitation. As they look at, at this discrepancy in our life, this gospel that they're offended by, but they see our good deeds and they want to understand why are we like what we are. 
And we point to Jesus Christ and we point them to the hope that is only to be found in him. We talked a little bit last week how this drama is composed of scenes. We know that there is our own internal battle. It's like a dialogue. Now, those around us don't see that dialogue going on. That's good because they would think that we're crazy. But there is this dialogue going on. I'd say it's an internal monologue. It's more of an internal dialogue. You can think about Hamlet speaking to himself. He does that vocally, though. But it's this dialogue between the new creature in us, the person who has been remade in the image of Jesus Christ, who's being transformed from one degree of glory to another, that, that, that abstains from fleshly lust that wage war against the soul. But there's this dialogue between that new creature and that dead flesh, that remaining portion of us that wants to please itself. And that's part of the scene that's taking place. But there's also this scene, and Peter is, is, is conscious of their relationship before the government. And we looked at that scene in verses 13 to 17 of chapter 2. There's this scene between slaves and masters of our relationship to those in authority over us. In New Testament times, it's slaves and masters. There's a good parallel, probably the best parallel we have in the Bible, in our employment lives. There's this scene of, we'll look at this today, verses 19 to 25 of chapter 2, of as we suffer unjustly. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, there's this scene of our marriages, and all these scenes make up together this stage in which we are exalting Jesus Christ, in which we are demonstrating his worth. It's in these daily scenes that God is putting the spotlight on Jesus Christ. I'm going to read now from 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable, where we looked at last week, perverse. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for preserving your word for us this morning. And Lord, we want our lives to be in compliance with what you are requiring from us here. And so, Father, we thank you that you do uh, teach us how we are to endure suffering when we suffer unjustly. And yet, Lord, we're going to go even further beyond that, beyond even the example of Christ uh, to what Christ accomplished, accomplished through his death and resurrection, that we are to be dead to sin and alive to righteousness, that we have been healed of the curse of our sins. So I pray, Father, that you would give us ears that are, are eager to implement the glory of what you've accomplished through Christ, Lord, that we would be transformed because of who we are in Christ Jesus that we would be comforted by knowing Christ as the shepherd and guardian of our souls. 
Please, Father, give us uh, ears that are ready to hear and, and prepare us uh, today, Lord, for the ministry we have this day, but in the upcoming week as our lives are this stage uh, on which Christ is glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning in 1 Peter 2, verses 19 to 25, we're going to see four ways in which we ought to respond to unjust suffering so that those without God might become his worshipers. So we're going to see four ways that we ought to respond to unjust suffering so that those without God might become his worshipers. And this is all launching from that purpose uh, clause we see in uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 12, that they, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation, on the day in which Christ returns. So the first of these is that we are to anticipate God's favor when you suffer unjustly. Anticipate God's favor when you suffer unjustly. We see that in verses 19 to 20. Some of this will be reviewed a little bit from last week because I did stop, stop abruptly there. 1 Peter 2.19, Peter uses the word charis, the word most often translated in God's word grace, to describe what those who suffer unjustly receive from the Lord. In the New American Standard, though, it says, for this finds favor. It says in the beginning of verse 19 and at the end of verse 20, for this finds favor with God. Your ESV Bible says, for this is a gracious thing. This finds favor. He's, he's not talking about here about grace as something that we don't deserve, but of God taking notice and responding according to what we have done. The Lord looks and rewards those who suffer unjustly. It is to their credit 1 Peter 1.7 talks about how when Christ returns, that we are going to have praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 2 talks about that too. How God rewards those who obey him. Now again, this is not talking about earning favor with God or getting credit with God so that we can be let into heaven. But he does look and he notices as we suffer unjustly. Peter discusses the suffering which God responds to with favor. He qualifies it. It's suffering that is, in verse 19 we see, if for the sake of conscience toward God. It's for the sake of conscience toward God. And it's not so much about having a good conscience before God. It's about having a consciousness of God, being mindful of God, bearing, bringing what we know of God in his word, bringing the truth of God, to bear upon our suffering, so that we are mindful of him, so that we are conscious of God, of his commands, of his presence, of his nature. In verse 20, Peter talks about what the result of this God consciousness is. He describes it as when you do what is right. He says, and but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. It's when you do what is right. And the word right has a range of meanings there, from, from the exemplary conduct of citizens to doing good to benefit others. And we've seen in, in past weeks, we've seen this phrase used already in Peter. We saw it in 1 Peter 2.15. By doing good, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's doing right. It's doing good. The best conduct is beneficial conduct, not just law-abiding conduct. 
right? I mean, because in a sense, you, you, you can check the box mark, you can bo- check the box about being a good citizen while I keep the laws. But here, this doing good, this doing right, it's not only staying within the parameters of man's laws, but it's having a mind towards fulfilling God's command to love. It's not just driving safely because the law says that you have to. It's driving safely because you love your family you need to provide for. It's driving safely because you love those who are driving next to you. It's driving safely because you love the other passengers in your car. It's doing right. It's doing good. In the context of slavery, doing right and doing good was trying to be as much of a blessing to their earthly masters as possible. To help their earthly masters get as much return of their investment as possible. And that's what we should be doing in our work lives. You are paid. How much can your employee get from the money he is giving you? How much good can you do them? So that's Peter's first qualification about the kind of favor that God has as we suffer, or or the, the kind of suffering that God responds to with favor. The second qualification is those who patiently it patiently endures. It says then, beginning in verse 19, for, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows. He describes it as bearing up. At the end of verse 20, describes it as you patiently endure it. When you persevere, when you patiently endure, it's not just grinning and bearing it. It's recognizing the theological reality behind your suffering. It's not just getting through it. It's remembering what James 1 says about the unjust suffering we go through. And he says this about all trials. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is how you go through unjust suffering. That's how you endure, by remembering what God is doing through this suffering. James 1 verse 12 has more to say. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You're looking forward to that crown of life as you go through unjust suffering. Or you remember what it says in Romans 8, 16 to 17, that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Or you remember what it says in Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That includes unjust suffering. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. That is what God is accomplishing, our glorification, through the unjust suffering that we go through. And that is how we endure. See, our enduring is not just getting through. It's not just putting up. It's applying theological convictions of God's sovereignty and of his good will to us in Christ Jesus to our suffering. We endure by taking comfort that this finds favor with God. Our unjust suffering is an investment that God will eternally reward. 
He will reward the unjust suffering we endure from parents who are bitter that we have placed God's commands above their dreams for us and their purpose in our education. He will reward the unjust suffering we endure from children who are angry that we won't let them do what we want, what they want to, or won't let them watch what they want to, or listen to what they want to, or wear what they want to, or date whom they want to. He will reward unjust suffering we endure from friends who ridicule us for wasting our lives, for those of us who are women wanting to be workers at home. He will reward the unjust suffering we endure from co-workers who belittle our submission to company policies. He will reward the unjust suffering we endure from classmates who mock our submission to what God's word says about creation in six days, about gender, about marriage. He will reward the unjust suffering we endure from potential customers who threaten litigation because of what we can't do in a clear conscience. He will reward the unjust suffering we endure from neighbors who malign us because of our friendship with those neighbors that are somehow the undesirable neighbors. He will reward the unjust suffering we endure from all of the above who are offended as we plead with them to turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we do right, as we do good on this, this stage where God is glorifying his son, God will look on you with favor and respond with reward to your rejection. We need to anticipate God's favor when you suffer unjustly. We also need to follow Christ's example when you suffer unjustly. We need to anticipate God's favor when you suffer unjustly. We also need to follow Christ's example when you suffer unjustly. In the beginning of verse 21, Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose. The, the, the ESV has it a little bit tighter. For to this you have been called. That, that, that word purpose isn't clear there. For to this you have been called. And that this forces us to look backwards. What is this? What is this we've been called to? What is this purpose we've been called for? It's to suffer unjustly. To this you have been called. And that is profound. The call that Peter's talking about there is the gospel call. It is the effectual call by which God produces faith in you so that you respond to the gospel. It's the call that he talked about in 1 Peter 1, verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, it's that call that accomplishes God's work in your life so that you hear the gospel and you respond in faith. It's the call in 1 Peter 2, 9 of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That same call is calling you to this, to this undeserved suffering, to this suffering for doing good. See, God's saving call includes the call to suffering. Unjust suffering is essential, not optional. It's part of God's saving call. It is not a detour but the path on which he saves us. Now, we know we're only saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But when he calls us, just as much as he called us to proclaim his excellencies, he calls us to suffering. Peter explains why we are called to suffer. 
in 1 Peter 2.21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The word example is used of children tracing over letters of the alphabet to learn how to write them. Maybe if you've had if young kids are teaching them to write, they're, they're tracing over the letters. It was how they learned how to write. Christ's suffering is an example for us to trace. He left behind steps for us to walk in. We were called to suffer because we were called to follow Jesus Christ. There's three ways that Jesus suffered. We see it in, in verse 22. It says, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Christ suffered unjustly. Now, we, we, we've already seen that in verses 19 and 20. That we suffer unjustly. We suffer for doing what is right. Well, Christ also suffered unjustly. And that's what Peter's focusing on here. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. We'll see that in these verses, Peter spends a lot of time reflecting from Isaiah 52 and 53. There of the suffering servant. Here he's alluding to Isaiah 53 verse 9. Where it says his grave, referring to the future Messiah, the suffering servant, was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with the rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Peter's primary focus here is not Jesus' perfection. His, his, his complete sinlessness. Now that's well taught in scripture. And it's probably something you can apply from this verse, but that's not his focus. We know Jesus is sinless. John 8, 29. Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to his, to his Father. Hebrews 4, 15 describes how Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3, 5, in him there was no sin. Scripture is very clear that Jesus was sinless, but Peter's primarily focusing here on the unjustness of what Jesus suffered that he didn't deserve any of the suffering he endured. He committed no sin, and nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And as we think about Jesus' suffering, he suffered more for telling God's truth than he did for anything else. Had Jesus simply done good without words? Had he simply performed miracles? Had he simply eaten with Pharisees and tax, and, 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 and tax collectors, if he had simply done loving things, he wouldn't have suffered as much as he did, particularly with his miracles. Right? People loved his miracles. They loved being fed by him. They loved being healed by him. They flocked for that. See, but the miracles were to affirm Jesus as prophet. Jesus' doing good included telling the truth. The man needed to repent because God's kingdom was coming. It would have been deceitful for Jesus to remain silent. But Jesus didn't. There was no deceit in his mouth. He never pulled back from speaking truth. We can't be surprised when we endure suffering. And I know that that's kind of a, a, a common theme for Christians to be, and it's, and it's understandable to be concerned, but to be panicking in America. 
because we are facing potential suffering in the future. Maybe some of us enduring that now. If the sinless Christ suffered, how much more will we? We are to follow in his footsteps. We are to trace his example. And he suffered unjustly. His suffering wasn't because, of course, you can't even say this about Jesus. It wasn't because he was rude. It wasn't because he was obnoxious. It wasn't because he, he wasn't compassionate in sharing the gospel. He suffered unjustly. Christ suffered unjustly. He also suffered without retaliating. We see that in verse 23, the, the beginning part. It says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Again, we see Peter influenced by Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before cheers, so he did not open his mouth. Reviling is insulting, abusive speech. Jesus was reviled throughout his ministry, but especially during his trial and death. Matthew records a lot of that. I'm going to read some of it here. We see the reviling he went through. They spat in his face and beat him with their fist. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Matthew 26, verses 67, 68. Matthew 27, verses 12 through 14. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a sing single charge. So the governor is quite amazed. He did not protest his innocence. Matthew 27, 28 through 30. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. Matthew 27, verses 39 to 44. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The robbers who'd been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is the reviling that Jesus went through. But he didn't revile in return. It would have been tempting, I think, for us to intimidate with threats, with promises of future judgment, of God is going to get you. And we see those examples from the early church. Some said that Polycarp said, you threaten with that which, 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 you threaten with that which burns for a time. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment, eternal punishment that awaits the ungodly. Now, maybe he was warning them in, in love. But that kind of threat is typical, right? Well, you want to threaten me? I'll threaten you. But that's not what Jesus did. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Jesus didn't revile. He didn't retaliate. Instead, Christ suffered while entrusting. 
And I know that's a little weird saying Christ suffered while entrusting. Is entrusting normally has, well, what is he entrusting? But that's exactly as the Greek text has it. We're kind of left wondering, what is he entrusting? At the end of verse 23, it says, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And if you see in your New American Standard Bible that, that himself is in italics, it's because it's not in the original. They're trying to help it make it better English, and they have to make a choice. What is he entrusting? To entrust means to deliver or hand over. Jesus was delivered to Pilate. He was handed over to Pilate. Well, now Jesus is entrusting to God the Father. What is he entrusting? Is he entrusting himself? Is he entrusting his enemies to God the Father? Is he entrusting the whole situation? Is he entrusting justice? There's no reason to, to pick and choose. All of that is entrusted to God the Father. Jesus delivered it all over to God the Father. He waited for the Father's outcome. He was confident in his Father's justice. And this is how Jesus suffered. He suffered unjustly. He didn't deserve it. He suffered without reviling and without threats. He, and he suffered in trusting. He suffered in confidence. This is why he could say in Matthew, Mark 14, verse 62, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He was confident that God the Father would vindicate him. He was, he was able to pray for his persecutors as he does in Luke 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing as they cast lots for his clothing. That is what entrusting ourselves to God the Father looks like. We put ourselves in his care. And that is what we are to do while we suffer if we are to follow in Jesus' footsteps. We must suffer for doing good as commanded by our Heavenly Father without retaliating, waiting, and trusting ourselves to him who judges justly, who's righteous. So we, we look at Jesus' example there. And that seems impossible, right? To suffer unjustly, to suffer patiently enduring, to suffer without threatening. How do we do this? And Peter is conscious that, that we can't do that on our own. That brings us to our third action we need to take. Persist in Christ-enabled obedience when you suffer unjustly. Persist in Christ-enabled obedience when you suffer unjustly. And I think that this is where Peter goes next. So first we saw we need to anticipate God's favor. We need to follow Christ's example. And now we need to persist in Christ-enabled Christ obedience. In verse 24, Peter transitions from Christ's example of suffering to the effect of his suffering. From the example of his suffering to the effect of his suffering. It says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. With the phrase, he himself bore our sins in his body, Peter alludes to three different uh, potential verses from Isaiah 53. On Isaiah 53 verse 4, it says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, By his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53 verse 12 at the end, Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressions. Jesus bore our sins in his body. He took the, 
punishment for our sins. Jesus' death was more than suffering. It was substitution. Jesus took the punishment due sinners like us upon himself on the tree. Your New American Standards Bibles have translated it bore our sins in his body on the cross. And cross is fine, but you'll see a little note there that says tree or or. Or wooden tree is probably better translation than cross. There's a different word for for cross, and by keeping that word tree, we 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 catch on to something that Paul says in Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." And there, Paul in Galatians three thirteen is quoting from Deuteronomy twenty one verse twenty three. And talking about capital punishment there, that the person hanging on a tree was cursed. And that is what happened on the cross. Jesus was cursed in our place. God poured out his wrath on his son in our place. He bore my sins. And if you are in Jesus Christ, he bore your sins. But Jesus was not only cursed so we could be forgiven, but also so we could be fixed. Middle of verse 24. There's a so that here. And he doesn't say so that we'll escape punishment. And that's true though. He doesn't say so that we'll escape hell, although that's true. The so that in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now Peter doesn't explain the, the connection here of how Jesus dying on the cross frees us to die to sin and live to righteousness. Paul in Romans 6 explains more about our dying with Christ and our, our being brought back to life with Christ. But the application is the same as in Romans 6. We have died to sin and live to righteousness. Sin now has as much power over us as a skeleton hanging on to our heel. It has no power, influence maybe, creepy definitely, but no power. Our lives now have a different purpose. We are alive to righteousness. We no longer want to escape God, but we want to please God. We don't fear his commands, but we love his law. It is good we are alive to righteousness if you are in Jesus Christ. Jesus bore our sins on his body on the tree so we could be righteous on this stage of our lives. So we could be righteous in our workplaces and righteous in our homes and righteous in our relationship to the government and righteous in our marriages. At the end of verse 24, Peter reinforces, for by his wounds you were healed. And again, not surprising, there's reference to Isaiah 53, verse 5 this time. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. By his, by his, his wounds, by his welts, by his bruises, we are healed. Now, it's, it's singular there. He's not talking about all of them, but by what happened to him in his suffering ending in his crucifixion. Now, Peter, when he says we're healed, it's not talking about our physical healing, although we know that Christ ultimately accomplished that when he died on the cross. He died on the cross, eventually, that all the effects of sin are going to be done away, and creation will be remade. 
He's talking there about our being healed from sin, about being finally cured, about sin's lies being dispelled, about sin's chains being broken. We have been liberated by Jesus' death to obey. And so I have to ask you, is that the experience of your life? Have you been liberated by Jesus' death for obedience? Have you died to sin and lived to righteousness? Is that who you are now? Can you say, yes, that, that, that life dominated by sin is past. I have been freed. I have been healed by Jesus' sacrifice. I am alive now to righteousness. And we know that, that right now that that righteousness is, is not perfectly practiced by us. We still have that skeleton of the old man hanging on to our ankle, influencing us, even though dead. Our righteousness isn't perfect yet. It will be if you have faith in Jesus Christ. So the question now for you is, is has that happened to you? Have you died to sin and do you live to righteousness? And if, and if you can't say yes, why not? Is it because you've never been unified through faith in Jesus Christ? Is it because you have never, as Peter says next, he says you were continually straying like sheep in verse 25, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. Are you still straying like sheep? Are you still stiff-arming God? Are you still going your own way? Or have you returned? Have you turned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls? That's really the testimony of all those who have been saved by Jesus Christ, who have put their hope in Jesus Christ alone. They once were straying like sheep. This is the testimony of the believer here. This is our LinkedIn bio. I was continually straying like a sheep, but I have returned. Is that your testimony? Is your straying past tense? Are you done willingly wandering away from your Lord? Are you done being led astray and deceived by sin, by Satan, by the world, by your own flesh? Have you returned? And what he's talking about here is not the believer wandering away and returning. He's talking about our salvation. Scripture often talks about our coming to God as returning. Have you turned? Have you been converted? Have you been healed? Have you repented? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you dead to sin and alive to righteousness? Brothers and sisters, your sins were carried by Christ to the cross so that you could say no to sin and yes to obedience. That's true of all of our lives, not just when you suffer unjustly, even though that's Peter's primary focus here. So are you living out the why of why Christ died? And we know there's lots of whys. He died to bring us to God. Peter's going to talk about that. But there's this why, so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. Are you living out the why of Jesus on the cross? Or are you picking up again and again 
the, the burden of habitual sins that he already bore, that died with him. Having been healed from sin, are you living like you're still infected? Like you've got gangrene and it's spreading? Are you looking for satisfaction in streams that have been polluted with sin, that are sick with sin? Are you living out the why? Are you living to righteousness? And when you suffer unjustly, remember, as Peter reminds you, suffering saints, that Christ, Christ has purchased for you, enabled for you this obedience, this ability to obey. You don't have to lose your temper or retaliate. You don't have to talk back or get even or slander those who are slandering you. You don't have to be ashamed of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. And you don't even have to stand up for your rights unless you think that by doing so, you're going to advance the cause of the gospel, which is when we see that Paul stands up for rights so, so that gospel can go forward. You don't even have to stand up for your rights. You can suffer as a Christian. Because of Jesus' sacrificial suffering, you can do right mindful of God. It's because of his sacrifice you can do good when you suffer for doing good. Jesus' death and resurrection applied to you through his spirit who has united you to him through faith is sufficient for your obedience. So persist in Christ's enabled obedience. And last, remember Christ's presence. We need to anticipate God's favor when we go through suffering. We need to follow Christ's example. We need to persist in Christ-enabled obedience. And we need to remember Christ's suffering. I mean, remember Christ's presence. We remember his suffering. Remember Christ's presence. And that's how verse 25 ends. What a sweet phrase. We have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. We saw that in John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. When we were in Isaiah 40 not long ago, Isaiah 40 verse 11, like a shepherd he will tend his flock. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sure, Peter was thinking about all of those passages. He was there when he heard Jesus say, I am the good shepherd. He knew Isaiah's 40 promise of the good shepherd who would come. He memorized Psalm 23 of the good shepherd. Once we strayed, but now we have one who leads us perfectly, even when he leads us into suffering, even as we follow his footsteps. As shepherd, Jesus rules. As shepherd, Jesus leads. As shepherd, Jesus corrects. And as shepherd, Jesus feeds. As shepherd, Jesus watches over us. That's some of the idea as well of the next word, guardian, which is the same word, episkopos, which as we learned Last week from Brother Ben, means overseer or bishop. It means guardian. It's one who watches to protect and who rules over. This word episkopos, guardian, was often used of Greek gods. 
use of their care of the city or of a certain part of the population. Of course, these Greek gods are not real gods, but they, they believed Athena was a guardian over Athens. Or, or Artemis watched over those who were pregnant. But this guardian is over our souls. Jesus is the guardian of our souls. Not just talking about the immaterial portion of us. It's a metonym for all of us. Both terms, guardian and shepherd, have a sense of Jesus' authority and his attention. His command and his care. His power and his protection. When you suffer for doing good, you are under the watchful eye of your shepherd. You have not wandered outside of his fold because you're suffering. He is watching to strengthen you. He is observing to reward you. If needed, he will carry you. He cares about you as you go through suffering. He is your guardian. He is the lighthouse guiding you to the shore of heaven. He is the police officer that is walking you safely home. He's not some kind of lucky charm in your pocket. He's not a crucifix or some kind of pendant reminding you of a patron saint. He's, he's not a charm that fends off evil. But he's your loving Lord to whom all authority on heaven and on earth has been given. That is who your guardian is if you are in Jesus Christ. So whether you are suffering for doing good in your home or in your workplace, whether it's in a classroom where you are standing up for what God says is true, his eye is on you. As shepherd and guardian, he's attentive to your needs. Jesus could close the show of your life and have you home at any moment. He could draw the curtain on this stage you're in any time. Your part in this divine drama could be over. And it will be one day, either because you've played your part or because Christ himself makes a dramatic entrance, amen? But for now, this day, this Sunday, and we imagine for the upcoming week, he's leaving you on it. You have a role to play. You proclaim his excellencies, and you do good deeds so that those without God will become his worshipers whether that's in our workplace or in our home where our little children are watching you. Some of you are suffering today. You've been rejected and you've been mocked. In the sense, the crowds that are watching what's going on the stage of your life, some of you as family are throwing tomatoes at you. Jesus has promised reward. He's given the example for us to follow. Today, he is supplying the strength for you to obey through his death and resurrection. And he will support you until the curtain closes. Until then, we continue to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Let's close in prayer. Father, you are well aware that our conformity the likeness of Jesus Christ will put us on a path of suffering. We know that in, in today's world, um, many around us are fine with us doing many good deeds, um, as long as we don't tell what's true. 
as long as we don't proclaim the good news. So, Father, whether it is in our proclamation of your excellencies or in our doing good deeds, Lord, we are aware that if we're following Christ, we're going to go through suffering. And so we thank you, Father, for your attentiveness uh, to the burdens that we're going through. We think about your care for those slaves, some of whom had perverse masters, who are going through horrible things, unlike what probably any of us have gone through, or very seldom. Lord, we thank you that you care. We thank you that we are honored. We have the privilege to follow in Christ's example, that we get to trace our lives over his life. We pray, Lord, you would help us to do that faithfully in word and deed until there's no separation of the two, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would help us to apply to our, our, our days the reality of Christ's substitutionary death, an effective death, not just taking our punishment, but enabling us to die to sin and live to righteousness. I pray, Father, that my brothers and sisters here would be stirred this morning to put the sin in their lives to death and to embrace a new, a fresh living to righteousness from the very moment that they wake up to the moment that they go to bed. I pray this particularly, Lord, for those who are going through unjust suffering. Lord, that they might be particularly strengthened to follow Christ's example. We look forward and anticipate the reward that comes from you as we suffer for you. We pray, Father, for boldness. We pray, Lord, for more hope in Jesus Christ, for more encouragement by having him as the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. That's exactly the, the encouragement he gave as he, as, as he left telling the disciples to make disciples. That all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, and thank you that he is caring for us today. So help us, Father, in this day going into this week, to be faithful to fulfill the commission that you've given us, knowing that our shepherd and guardian is watching over us and is caring for us and is commanding us. Father, please bring glory to your Son on the stage of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.